Welcome to Hoops Royalty. I'm King Jimison alongside, as always, my man in Cleveland, Karna Venkatraj. And we've got a sleigh full of royal hoops takes to deliver under that podcast tree far and wide. I mean, the Grizzlies had some points to unload this week in their Christmas season as they had two players go for 40-plus. Desmond Bain, of course, dropped a career-high 49 against the Pistons last Wednesday, tied for the second-most points in Grizzlies franchise history. And, of course, the Pistons fouled to deny him a shot at 50. But anyways, and Jaron Jackson Jr. poured in 41 in last night's game versus the Mavericks. Meanwhile, the Grizzlies went 1-2 and two last week and still sit in 13th place in the Western Conference before Ja Morant's long-awaited return in three games. The Grizzlies are kind of doing some like Trout, Otani, Angel stuff. Two players putting up these massive numbers in a losing effort, getting absolutely no help except from one Vince Williams Jr., but we'll save that for later. But Karna, before we get into the good and the bad, the last week of Grizzlies action, please tell me, if you had all the money in the world, would you have given $700 million of it to Shohei Otani? There's no one, no other basketball player I would give that much money to other than Shohei Otani. The guy's a freak. Happy to see that he got the money that he deserved. Um, annoyed at the contract as a baseball fan, but we will see what happens. We so, I just have to follow up on that. I hear you. Like, he is the best baseball talent of maybe any generation, and certainly this one. But what about the concerns that he might, like, never pitch again and might not be this two-way star? Obviously, when you look at the details of the contract and they're not really paying him that much year to year, maybe this doesn't even matter. But, like, are the Dodgers really going to get what they paid for in this case? I mean, look, if the bet is in the next 10 years you win three World Series with the guy at DH or even in right field, it's still worth it, right? Like, that is worth yeah. it. And it, the way that you do think about this is, like, in 10 years, what is the value of a $680 million contract, right? Or like however many, much it is. And the value of that contract seems huge right now. But just based off the time value of money, it is not going to be that as big a contract as you might think. In present value, yeah. people are pegging it like $440 million, which is well within the realm of possibility for how much this guy is worth. Um, I think it's a good contract as a person who loves baseball that uh and teams that aren't the dodgers i hate this contract and it's really yeah. annoying and i don't like that but as a person who loves Shohei Otani, i'm glad he got his generational wealth yep and is i guess unselfish enough or at least committed to winning enough that he is gonna allow his team to do a lot around him before then unfortunately the team is the dodgers and that makes both of us very upset but Karna, when you have your 700 million you're putting it towards an ownership stake in the Memphis Grizzlies. Oh, not, absolutely. I'm buying not paying Shohei Otani's contract. Okay, just so we're clear. But uh, speaking of the Memphis Grizzlies, in today's show, we'll give out our royal decrees. Or actually, this week, we may only have one royal decree. And more on that in a second. But then we'll discuss Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr.'s explosions and kind of what it reveals about both players, what we're seeing in the growth from both of these players. And then in the Royal Court, we'll debate who are the five best players on a fully healthy Grizzlies roster this season, excluding Brandon Clark and Steven Adams, although maybe there's an outside shot Brandon Clark joins that conversation. I mean, three are clear. We know John Moran, Desmond Bain, and Jaron Jackson Jr. are the Grizzlies' three best players. will be that moving forward. But the question is, how good can they be? And that's going to be determined by 
four through nine or four through ten, which is hopefully going to start to look a little bit healthier and a little bit better. But Karna, are you ready for me to just get right into my royal decree, which you have deferred your own in order to ask some very hard hitting questions about mine? Yeah, you know I like to poke and prod at King, so that's that's the the point of this uh, royal decree. Karna is in his natural element, but here we go. My royal decree is Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. are different players than the Grizzlies coaching staff think they are. And I just had an article published about this on The Lead. Please go and check that out. You can see what I'm talking about in much more detail, especially if you're a visual learner like I am. But the gist of it is the Grizzlies still treat Desmond Bain like he's Clay Thompson in too many cases. He is second in the NBA in dribble handoffs. He is 14th in the NBA in times he runs off a screen for a shot. He's not particularly good at either one of those things. And I think that's because other teams are expecting that's how they're going to use Desmond Bain as more of a pure shooter. But the truth is, Desmond Bain is a three-level scorer. The comp I used in my article is he's closer to a peak Bradley Beal than he is a peak Clay Thompson. And I think that's actually a good thing for the versatility of his offensive game. What I mean is, obviously, he's an elite shooter. He's eighth in the NBA in threes per game. But he's 16th in the NBA in scoring, not just because of those threes. He's shooting a higher percentage from mid-range than Devin Booker. He is more efficient in the pick and roll than Jason Tatum and Kyrie Irving. His transition opportunities, he's scoring at a higher rate than Giannis and LeBron. Now, he doesn't do any of those three things as much as the players I mentioned. And maybe as we see him get to a higher volume, the same efficiency is not going to stick. But I would bet on the contrary, because he's already seeing insane defensive attention, and yet he's putting up these efficient numbers in the types of plays we never thought he would be able to operate. He needs to be given the keys to the offense in a more substantial fashion now. And even when John Morant returns, because if you have two true on the ball creators in your backcourt, that's making you almost impossible to stop. Then there's Jaron Jackson Jr. I think the type of player we tend to associate Jaron Jackson Jr. with is more of like a Chris Tapps Porzingis type three point shooter, um, shot blocker, unicorn, like a Miles Turner, too, is another example. My research shows he's actually closer to like a Joel Embiid or a Giannis in his offensive skill set. Is he at the overall level of those players yet? No, not even close. But he is the most efficient isolation scorer in the NBA if you filter for volume. That has to mean something. He's fourth in the NBA in points scored on post-ups this season. Very efficient in that regard as well. And in the extremely limited pick-and-roll ball-handling chances he's gotten, he is at the 85th percentile. Both Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. are creators. They're offensive hubs. They're multiple-level scorers, and yet we're treating them like specialists. For the Grizzlies to unlock who they truly can be offensively, even with John Morant healthy, you got to give both of them the chance to have the ball in their hands. So. Instead of proposing my own royal decree, I read King's fantastically researched article. You should all go read it. It's just King is in his bag as per usual. 
Thank you. Thank but you. I kind of had three follow-up questions, and really four, but let's start with the first three. I think, I like to think about front office systemically, right? Does the mismanagement of these two players, and he, uh, mismanagement's a strong word, I understand that, but does that kind of disconnect between what Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson should be doing according to your research and what they are doing according to what we see on the floor, does that reveal a larger pattern from the front office for misevaluating talent? Another example that comes to mind is Jacob Gilliard. Another example that comes to mind is not using Vince Williams sooner into the season. Uh, is it emblematic of maybe those patterns? Yes, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction, but I think that's a great connection. The biggest thing I see is that the Grizzlies have been drafting for specialists. They drafted Jake LaRavia because they thought their biggest need was three-point shooting. Frankly, they drafted Zaire Williams and David Roddy because they thought these guys were not going to be stars. They thought they would be great complementary wings. The problem is when you go looking for specialists, it's a much more high-risk proposition than somebody who's a well-rounded, fully-formed basketball player, and particularly somebody who can score the ball in their hands. I think the success that Jalen Noel has had on the Grizzlies, and I got to give credit to Chris Harrington because he's been saying this the whole time, is not as much about Jalen Noel as it is about what the Grizzlies didn't have before him. Make anything happen off the dribble. So the fact that Jalen Noel is like okay at that revealed that was a glaring hole in the Grizzlies roster. And Similar things are happening with Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. and how they are occasionally pigeonholed. And yes, I know Desmond Bain is getting a lot of pick and roll ball handling opportunities, but it's only like 27th in the NBA. Jaron Jackson Jr. is getting a fair amount of isolation opportunities, but only 30th in the NBA. What they're doing much more frequently are things they're not good at. Desmond Bain, for whatever reason this season, has not been good coming off a screen, probably because he's got like three bodies flying at him when he does that. Jaron Jackson Jr. is one of the worst players in the NBA as a pick-and-roll role man, probably because he's not settling, setting the most physical of screens, and also that's just not playing to his strengths. He is not just a play finisher. He is a guy who probably needs the ball in his hands to score. And so, yes, I think the, the front office is putting players in boxes that don't necessarily fit them. And on the other hand, they're looking for players that fit very specific boxes rather than people who can create with the ball in their hands. I think that's an excellent point. Um, so moving on, what do you think happens to Jaron's ISO efficiency or touches overall when Jer when Jaw comes back? And sub part to that question, you make this interesting comparison between Jaron Jackson Jr. in the article more specifically and Joel Embiid, just like you did in your um, your row of the creed. Is, and I don't want to put you in a box, even though I love painting you in the corner most of the time, but is Jaron Jackson Jr. sealing Joel Embiid? So to kind of two parts on Jaron Jackson Jr. I'm not going to say it's not. It's so hard to see that because he's so far from that right now. But, if you just look at the best stretches of Jaron's career, like when Jaw was out with his first suspension last season, like these past few games, he's got that level of production. Is he ever going to be the physical rebounder that Joel Embiid is? No, I don't think so. I think that ship has sailed. But he 
probably already is a better defender. And he's probably already a better three-point shooter, particularly in the ways he can shoot. He's not just like a spot up when he's wide open. He can shoot on the move a little bit. Um, and he's starting to develop that ability to bruise his way to buckets in the paint, whether he's coming from the perimeter off the dribble or getting a post touch. So, yeah, I think that is if, – if Jaron is looking at a North Star for his game, it's Joel Embiid and Giannis. It's not a stretch four. He's so much more than that. And I think because he's been asked to be a stretch four, that's what the Grizzlies think are going to complement John Morant best. Um, he hasn't fully realized that potential until very recently. Now, about the John Morant thing, obviously he's going to get less touches. And is that going to affect both Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr.? Probably. But in my article, I argue you can get all of these guys the opportunity. It starts with, you know, using their strengths to complement one another. If you put Desmond Bain as the pick and roll ball handler, that doesn't mean Jaw is doing nothing. That means he's standing off ball, and if Desmond Bain swings it to him, Jaw can attack a scrambling defense, attack a closeout. That's a lot easier for him than having to, you know, bust his head against the wall over and over again on the pick and roll. If Jaron Jackson Jr. gets a post touch, you can have Desmond Bain spotting up for an open three, and he's still extremely efficient in spot ups. He just doesn't get that many chances because if he's not running the offense, who is right now? So if you let all of them have their turns, I think it's going to also lead to easier opportunities for the guys who aren't on the ball as well. So I think that it will impact Jaron Jackson Jr.'s touches. Probably shouldn't impact it as much as it will, though. Yeah, interesting. That kind of goes back to our front office coaching staff discussion. Um, and I, I think the last thing is when Jock comes back, and, and you kind of really answered this in your last point, right, which is sharing the ball, sharing kind of the time. But how do we make sure that we are still optimizing for dead strengths? I think there's a concern that, you know, we, we've seen this special run of basketball for Desmond Bain, where he's really come out of a shell, both on the court and really from what we saw in the preseason and early season is, is uh, off the court as well. So how do we kind of maintain that both on the court, off the court progression for Desmond Bain? Because what you told me, earlier is that we are putting players in boxes and I couldn't agree more. How do we make sure Desmond Bain doesn't go back in the box? Put, put yeah. your, I guess put your coaching slash GM hat on. First. Man, I feel like you're the journalist. You were just firing off some fantastic questions and I love these. I wish I could be Taylor Jenkins and just continue to draw plays for Desmond Bain that aren't running off the screen all the time when John Morant comes back. And one of the things I, I was shocked to discover is that John Morant had the highest number of pick and roll ball handling possessions per game in the league last year you think okay it's got to be like somebody like luca or shea gilders alexander somebody who's an almost even bigger focal point and doesn't have the level of players around him that jaw does but no john morant had the most pick and roll ball handling possessions in the league that is an underutilization of jaron and desmond it's got to change this year Jaw was fine in the pick and roll last year, and I think that's a testament to his individual brilliance that even though defenses knew it was coming, he still managed to get buckets for himself and others. But they can be so much more if they are using Jaw off the ball more, if they're continuing to let Desmond Bain develop his game as a ball handler. There's still a lot 
of of creation to go around because yes hopefully you're adding both marcus smart and john Morant, two creators by the end of this month but that still leaves way too short a list on this grizzlies roster as a whole so yeah i, I want to see john Morant off the ball more um i just had this vision of desmond bain getting by his man in the pick and roll john Morant comes flying in from the other corner for a lob like a 6-3 lob threat that we know he is on the fast break, but I want to see that in the half court too um, and kind of reverse the roles of those guys at least at times to keep the defense off, off its, or keep the defense on its heels. Awesome. Great answers. Man, I, I don't know. If I'm the journalist, you might be the GM. You might be the front <laughs> office guy based off of those answers. I really like that. So I, I think with that, those are all the questions I had. Let's head first to the news of the realm and just – Discuss a little bit about this last week of Grizzlies basketball and, and what's kind of been encouraging. What is troubling sign of things to come? So, Carter, the Grizzlies went one and two this week. They beat Detroit last Wednesday, 116-102. Um, Detroit has now lost 20 straight games, which is honestly crazy impressive. Shout out to the Pistons. Um, I don't even think they're trying to tank, but if they are, this is elite. And the Spurs are right behind them at like 17 straight losses or something like that. But Desmond Bain dropped in 49. He also had eight assists, was crazy uh, productive from every spot on the floor. We saw his mid-range game unlocked to a whole new level. Still, it was a competitive game into the fourth quarter, which is probably concerning in and of itself. And then they came home against Minnesota. Anthony Edwards leaves that game in the first few minutes. You think maybe this is a chance, but no. Minnesota pounded. The Grizzlies on the boards, I believe it was 63 to 37. Um, they could not get a stop because even when they would play great defense, couldn't close out the defensive possession with a rebound. And so they lose by 24 um, in a result that dropped them to one and nine at home. And then they reached double digit home losses in the very next game last night against Dallas, losing by seven. Um, gave up 127 to Minnesota, 120 to Dallas. So that real defensive resurgence we saw after the Marcus Smart rant seems to have been lost. This time we had Taylor Jenkins going on a rant that wasn't nearly as effective. But yeah, I mean, Jaron scored 41. You still lost. Luka was incredible, but he didn't have his running mate in Kyrie Irving. Didn't have maybe their third best player in Grant Williams. It was striking to me how much better the Dallas depth was than Memphis's, even though they both had pretty long injury reports. Memphis was missing more guys and more important guys when you factor in John Morant. But it's it's still troubling that Memphis has been consistently more or consistently deeper than Dallas. And that's been a reason why, even though Luca is a certified Grizz killer, anytime he's out, it seems like Memphis has a huge edge in that matchup because they have better depth whether job plays or not. That's flipped. And and that is concerning not just for this season, but for the season to come. And Carno, when you look at it, do you think that this Grizzlies team with John Morant is good enough to get anywhere close to sniffing the play in? The play in potentially is this the question I think the larger question is, is this our year to take that next step? And another follow-up question is, are we the Heat? Like, are we the Heat where we can play from the behind for, against better teams? I think we've proven that we cannot do that right now. Um, it will be interesting to see the way that John Moran comes back. I think we are 
maybe pricing in that John Morant is going to come back perfect. I think that is a interesting thought, um, especially going up against players who have almost, you know, a good quarter of the season of the way through under their belt. I think John Morant is going to take time. It's not going to look perfect right when John Morant comes back. So let's say it gives us another 10 games. I think it's a really, really tough proposition to say that the Grizzlies are going to be competing for the play-in, and even if they get to the play-in, are they going to be competing for the playoffs? I, I just don't think we're there yet. I think we are missing some key pieces, and I would like to point out, in that three-game span that you just mentioned, I believe Bismack Biombo plus-minus, which again isn't a perfect stat, never gets above negative 10. Um, which is concerning to me overall. Sorry, he has a negative one in the um the pick. But that's still that's a game you win by fourteen and he's in the negatives. Like Yeah. And it, yeah. We're missing a, a we're just missing good pieces. Like Steven Adams whatever, you know, we said earlier in the season that Bismack Biombo was this some sort of savior. He is not. He is exactly what we thought he was and he still serves an important purpose. But we are missing key pieces, and what the Dallas game showed us is key depth pieces. Um, and, I, and I think it goes back to something that you said earlier, which is we are trying to put – we have drafted specialists, and those specialists right now are not panning out to be NBA-level depth pieces. We're talking about Roddy. We're talking about Zaire Williams. He had a terrible stretch against the Dallas Mavericks. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Just – Unplayable. Hitting, shots clanking off the backboard. He looked like me at the Lakewood Y. So no, dude. You no. You you're not clanking off the backboard. Now, could could Zaire dunk on you at will? Yes. I mean, he's still insanely athletic. But no, you give him the business in the post. You could you could back him down. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> All that's to say is, we have made a bed where our specialists and our role players are simply not good enough right now. The question isn't just when John Morant comes back. It's when Luke Kennard is fully healthy. It's when Marcus Smart is fully healthy. When all the guys, when we're able to put together a fully healthy team, which we'll get to in just a second, are we able to compete in the playoffs? I just don't see that happening. This where everyone's healthy all at once, where everyone is clicking all at once. And even when we do get that, they're going to have to learn how to play together. It's not going to look perfect right off the bat. So there's going to be that lag time, and we are falling further and further behind in the West. It's the best conference that we've seen in a long time. I just don't see it happening for the Grizzlies. Yeah, uh, to that point, Carter, that's a, that's a great closing there. The Grizzlies are six games back of the play-in right now. Is that something you can't overcome? Absolutely not. No, teams overcome a six-game deficit all the time. But when you consider that they're currently in 13th, so they still have two more teams to climb over, including the Warriors, before they even get in that conversation. And then there's a total log jam there in the play-in. Four teams actually are uh, are are tied in terms of the standings, um, and the Grizzlies are six games back of all of them. It sets up that that it's possible, but you're going to have to make up so much ground. You're going to have to be so much better than you are. Um, Keith Parrish on Bass Break Breakfast today, or on Grits and Grind, said. He thinks the Grizzlies will win about 60% of their games once John Morant and, and the rest of the crew is healthy. And if they do that, they'll probably get at least to like the 11 and maybe even to the bottom of the play-in. But I think what you're saying is if they get into that play-in, this is not the Miami Heat 
or the Lakers last year who were in the play-in and thought if we can just make it, we have a chance to win one playoff series, two playoff series, maybe even go all the way to the finals. Um, I, I cannot see that happening, even if Jod, Bain, and Jaron are incredible because the depth of this team is among the worst in the league. And, and that was displayed in striking detail in these past two home losses. And it's just it's such a structural problem that you could not fix without a major trade that the front office is probably unwilling and maybe even unable to make. Because if the Grizzlies played the Timberwolves in the playoff series, let's say the Timberwolves hold where they are, they're the one seed, the Grizzlies sneak into the playoffs as the eight. That series is going to look exactly like uh, these past two games where the Timberwolves have beaten the Grizzlies by 20-plus. Maybe it's better because you have John Morant's offensive output, but nothing's going to be stopping Rudy Gobert on the boards. The only thing that might stop him is if John Morant plays him off the court in the pick and roll. But it's just, it, it is something they can't fix because their two best rebounders are out for the season unless Brandon Clark makes a miracle recovery. Shout out the number one uh, Rudy Gobert fan, AJ, former f- friend of the show. Dude, he's looking <laughs> smart though. Like Rudy Gobert, watching that Timberwolves game, is their most important player. And Edwards went out, at least against the Grizzlies, that didn't matter that much. He's obviously incredible. Yeah, but... I think he's the most important player that on the floor against the Grizzlies. Yeah, because he's just such a distinct advantage. They don't have anybody who... Like, yeah. Jaron actually, I thought, gave good effort against Rudy Gobert and scored some points in that game, but it just didn't... Like, Rudy just went over him. There's nothing you can do about that. It's, it's tough. I mean, 20 rebounds is, is insane stat. Yeah. Um, especially in this NBA, that's great. When, when the three-point chance for, like, a big man to rebound like that, you just got to be fully dominant, especially considering how many shots are taken outside now. It's great. Uh, but, yeah, look, is it out, I think both King and I are, are in line with each other. Is it out of the realm of possibility that the Grizzlies can go to the plane? Absolutely not. They, yeah, I, I think I actually predict that they – that they will. I think they're going to get to like the 10 seed. Um, yeah. And that would be a success. But um, I would be pretty astounded if this team won a playoff series because I, of some of the guys you're going to have to trot out there, even if you shorten your rotation to, to eight. And, and, I, and I agree with that. And as you get further into the playoffs and you with a short rotation, I think what we've learned from the last three, four seasons in the NBA is that you got to play guys deep as when you get deeper into these playoff runs, um, there won't be short series for the Grizzlies. So that this is not the year that we win a championship. I think both King and I, I agree on that. The question now becomes, what are you playing for? And w- what are you trying to achieve this season? That may be out of the realm of a NBA championship, if we're being honest. Yeah. And I think getting into the playoffs via the play-in would be a huge success that the Grizzlies could could look at as an, an optimistic end to the season um, and, and build so much momentum. Yeah. Even reaching the play-in and not making it, because um, you know odds are they'd be in the 9-10 game, they'd have to win two. Um, even that, I think, would, would be considered a success given that they are currently 6-16 six and 16, yeah. and a lot closer to a number one pick than a number one seed. Tough. Tough but fair. <laughs> well, I think that's it. I, we didn't really mean for that to get into a play-in ceiling discussion. I'm still in on the Grizzlies with John Morant. I do think they're going to be an above 500 team in the games he plays. 
the question is, does he play all the games? And the question is, does is that even enough? Like they're going to have to be well above 500 to get to the 40 win mark that seems necessary for the plan. All right, let's head on over to the Royal Court and talk about those guys that are going to fill out the rotation once we have Jaw back next week. I guess a week from today. Shout out to the John Morant return game. It is it is only a week away, only three more games of Grizzlies basketball where we won't have Jaw. So here on the Royal Court Carna, I want to talk about what does the Grizzlies rotation look like once John Moran is back. And we're going to take three players for a given. That's obviously Jaw Bain Jackson. Who is the fourth best player on the Grizzlies, though, when when fully healthy? And again, we're going to take out Brandon Clark and Stephen Adams from this discussion because we don't expect they're going to see the court at any point. But who do you have as that number four guy? I have it as Marcus Smart. And I and I understand that Vince Williams Jr. has really made some waves. You know, he got like like we were talking about, he got respect from Luca, which is one of the more dynamic offensive players in the NBA. Um I think he's fully gaining confidence on the court based off of how he's talking to Luca. You know, one thing I love King more than maybe even basketball itself is talking trash. Um, Absolutely. You so, do love that. Yeah. I, I, it's just great to see that confidence build. That being said, Marcus Smart is a generational talent at perimeter defense. Um, his instincts for the game are almost second to none. And the leadership that he provides on and off the court I think has proven that it, it fits within the Grizzlies locker room. So I'm putting I'm putting Marcus Smart as my fourth best player, and maybe he's not even the fourth best player from like a off how offensive dynamically he is or, or things like that. I think he's the fourth most important player to the Grizzlies as well. Um, so that's where I stand. I think fourth place got me Marcus Smart. I can't wait to see Marcus Smart with John Morant in the role that that he's best suited for. Like. We know that he was struggling as a pure point guard. And that was the same thing in Boston. Like when they w- needed him to be a full point guard, he was not. But if you allow him to be an off ball player where he's a decent three point shooter, not bad, and he can be a secondary creator, and then his focus can really be on the defensive end, that's going to be the perfect role for him. Um, and most of all, we all hope that he's, he's getting in Jaws' ear. He continues to get in the rest of the team's ear, raise a level of play. I fully agree. Marcus Smart is the number four guy, and the Grizzlies need him to be if they're going to get anywhere close to their ceiling. What about number five, though? Who is the Grizzlies' fifth best player once Jaws back? Uh, Jake LaRavia. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Don't with me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to preface it by saying this. The fact that it's hard for me to think about this is frightening. Think about the depth of a, of a Denver Nuggets or a Los Angeles Lakers. There's no doubt who the best five players are for those teams. And if there is doubt, it's because there's like too many good ones. Exactly. Particularly on the Lakers. Exactly. There's a pretty steep drop-off after number four. I will say, and even though his position is cannibalized, what's proven to be true is that Vince Williams Jr. is the uh, fifth best player. The fifth most important player is going to be Bismack Beyond. Mm. Because you just can't get dominated on the boards like we did against the Timberwolves. Unfor- it's unfortunate. But there's a distinction between best and important. And I think that the fifth spot is really shows that distinction. 
Um, Bismack Biombo provides the physical presence that we need that we're missing with Steven Adams. And even though he's had a tough stretch of games, one, he's a veteran, and I think he'll figure it out. And two, you people like there people like Rudy Gobert just can't have twenty rebounds a game. And and Bismack Biombo is the only person that we have on the roster that can do anything about that. Uh, even though he did. Um so that is concerning, but also he is our only possible solution at that point. So that's where I'm going with that. That's crazy that you said Vince Williams. And honestly, if you look at his NBA career, obviously he's not the fifth best player. There's there's more accomplished players, and, and the one I'm going to name is number five, is certainly more accomplished. But Vince Williams' impact is undeniable. And it's kind of weird to me that Dave, David Roddy played fine last night, but David Roddy still played more minutes than Vince Williams, even though Vince Williams did a pretty awesome job on Luka. In the possessions where he was the primary defender, Luka did not do well. You can look up Sean Coleman's Twitter to see the exact stats and see some good video of those plays. Um, shout out to Sean for putting that together. But if they'd had Vince out there for every possession that Luca was terrorizing the Grizzlies defense, it might not have been such a scary sight. And in a seven-point loss, that seems like yet another coaching error we can pin to Taylor Jenkins. I think the fifth best player, though, is still Luke Kennard. And the problem here is you can't really play those five best players we've talked about together very often. They're going to be too small. And that leads to some real potential for trade talks. Luke Kennard is a coveted asset. Anybody can use a, an above 40% three-point shooter um, who also competes on the boards. Obviously not a good defender, but he, he can rebound, can do a little bit of secondary creation stuff. I think when he gets back, people are going to remember why he's so valuable, particularly alongside John Morant because he provides incredible spacing and Jaw's such a great passer. He's going to find him even when the defense is closely attached. So Luke Kennard is my fifth best player. I know his, sh- his shot wasn't falling early in the season. Then he found it right before he got injured. Hopefully he comes back and there's not that ramp up period. He gets right back to that 45% three point shooting. We've come to expect from Luke Kennard. Yeah. The issue with Luke Kennard is he, he's not very portable. Um, in a lot, in a, in a sense, for especially the Grizzly system. Again, am I saying Vince Williams is like one on one the best player on this, or like one of the five best players in the team? No, I'm not saying that. Um, I did for like I did honestly forget about Luke Kennard. I won't lie to you. I mean, it's he, easy to because he's barely played this season. He's barely played this season. So uh, the way that I view the question is, who's been the five most like instrumental for our our winning six wins? And I think Vince Williams is definitely one of those five players. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that being said, the contradiction I've contradicted my own self, which is saying Marcus Smart, putting Marcus Smart in there. But all that's to say is, look, Vince Williams is a guy who's going to make energy plays and be a stopper to some of these perimeter guys. Him and Marcus Smart on the floor at the same time is a worrying proposition offensively. But defensively, is there a better defensive backcourt in the NBA? Just based off of the small, again, small sample size. It's hard to think of a better defensive guard duo than Marcus Smart and Vince Williams Jr., which is an interesting thing. I think Vince Williams Jr.'s defense is one of the more dynamic skill sets overall. 
that we see. Like, if you think about a, a suite of skills, right? You know, John Morant has a suite of skills, his floater, his drive to the basket, his explosive athleticism. All of that goes in his offensive bucket of skills. I think Vince Williams has an incredibly dynamic defensive bucket of skills. Yeah, that's a great point. A really, really, I think he's moved drastically up the rankings, and I would argue that he's moved up against all of, against all of the young wings. Oh, um, easily. I think he's yeah. easily probably the one that sticks around the most important role player that we've seen so far. So that's yeah. where I'm going with that. Um, you know, I, I'm excited to see more from him as the season goes on. Yeah, and I do want to give some flowers to David Roddy. I mean, I think he's been playing significantly better. Um, it's not that he hasn't earned a starting role over the person who had it before, which is Zaire Williams. It's that, and, and this is going to go back to my role decree last week, it's that his skill set, Roddy's, is going to fit better with the bench because he actually does provide some scoring pop that Vince Williams does not. Now, Vince Williams was the third leading scorer in the last game, the only non-Bain Jackson player to reach double figures, but he is a spot-up shooter. He exclusively takes open threes, and sometimes attacks the basket or, you know, will get a putback. He's not going to create for himself. David Roddy, meanwhile, I actually think should probably take the ball to the basket more because it's, he seems to be really effective when he does it. If on a bench that is starved for offense, you kind of just unleash big body Roddy while putting Vince Williams in a starting lineup where he can lock up the other team's best player and fill the rebounding hole, that seems to be the best utilization of everybody's skill set. And then going back to Luke Kennard real quick, in the four games before he got hurt against the Lakers after just six minutes, he had 15 points, four threes against the Blazers, 13 points, three threes against Miami, 14 points, four threes against Utah, 13 points, four threes against uh, his old team, the Clippers, did not shoot below 44% from three in any of those games. I think the Grizzlies could use that about now when, as I just said, they only had three players in double figures last night. Their three-point shooting is improving as a team. Their three-point defense is improving as a team, but they just don't have people who can fill it up. Luke Kennard, because he is a generational shooter, can do that. I have a question for you. What about Santi Aldama? Yeah, another guy who, like David Roddy, is putting up some some good numbers. I think shown some solid growth and is a guy I want the Grizzlies to, to keep around. Like, if, if you get past the Santi Aldama, David Roddy, Vince Williams, Luke Kennard area, there's nobody be, behind them that I would be sad if they were no longer on the Memphis Grizzlies. And any of those guys I still see as expendable. But I think Santi Aldama has earned his way. He is a certified NBA rotation player. Um, he's just got to get a little bit more physical. Like, at this point, his body type does not allow him to bang in the post like he needs to be able to um, to be a starting level big. And so he's a worthwhile development pro developmental project because I think we've seen that uh, European big men with some passing savvy can turn into incredibly valuable players in this NBA. But in Santi's case, the biggest obstacle is going to be building up that strength and becoming actually more of a big man not less of it. Oh, look, man, he can he can pick up some of the pounds I'm trying to lose because, good <laughs> Lord. How, do they not know Dude, about Mass Gainer in Memphis? Dude, you, just ran a, you just ran a half marathon. You got to stop. You're I, in incredible shape. 
I feel like, though, it's so hard not to gain. Like, and you have to be intentional not to gain weight in Memphis at this point. Like, Central Barbecue's there, Rendezvous. Like, come on. Like, no. All that's to say, I, I agree with you. There's a physical gap between Santi Aldama and the rest of the NBA. It's obvious. Anyone who's watched basketball will know that Santi Aldama needs to get on whatever plan Giannis was on when he first got into the league. It's night and day. It helps prevent against injury to put on that much muscle mass or more muscle mass. It helps It helps you drive to the basket. It helps in a whole number of things. So I hope the Grizzlies front office is able to kind of make that progression. Even even Chet and Victor kind of have gone, have, have similar body types and are also actively trying to, you know, put on weight. Chet looks a little bit more filled out than he did right when he was coming out of college. So maybe it's a function of time, but I'm hoping to see that, that progression for Sonny. Because if he does do that, it opens up his game a little bit more and the potential then is sky high. He's a tall wing who could move his feet, who can score inside and outside at that point. Um, it would be an exciting proposition if he's able to gain like 20, 30 pounds of muscle over the offseason. And also if he can shoot better than 62% from the line. I mean, come on, Santi. Like, Dude, yeah. his three-point shot hasn't been falling, but like, he he is billed as a shooter. You gotta hit your free throws. Yeah, absolutely. But I think if you look at a rotation, there's John Moran, Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr., Marcus Smart, Luke Kennard, Bismack Biombo, Vince Williams, Santi Aldama, David Roddy. That is a competent NBA nine-man rotation. And it's not something the Grizzlies have been able to put on the floor all season. They have not had a competent nine-man lineup. And also, you're going to allow people to kind of slide back into roles they're more comfortable with. And I'm not talking about Bain and Jackson. I want them to continue and even get more opportunity in these creation roles that they've taken on. But I'm talking about not putting so much on Santi Aldama's plate. I'm talking about let's not try to have Luke Kennard operate on the pick and roll. Let's just let him be a three-point shooter. Um, And if you do that, everybody's going to start to look better. The hope is that John Morant unlocks everything. I'm not sure that he will because this roster still has glaring holes, but it's not going to hurt, that's for sure. I'm with you. Any last thoughts on today's episode, Carter? Probably the last episode we will record before John Morant's return. I'm excited to have 12 back, man. I'm really excited to have 12 back on the court. He exemplifies the best of Memphis at times, and I'm excited to see the best of Memphis on the court. Well, I got I to gotta stop you there. John Morant has been back on the court, or rather back in the court uh, in the civil trial. And it, it, thank you to those who are covering the trial. I've been particularly following Jeff Calkins and Drew Hill of the Daily Memphian. Um, just seems like a silly show in there, man. I mean, the kind of stuff that they're you doing in a crime-ridden city, uh, throwing a basketball back and forth in a courtroom, it's just, it seems like a waste of time. Um, and it seems like Jaw has a pretty good attitude about it. So hopefully that's signifying he's ready to come back in all aspects of his life. But uh, hopefully that wraps up quickly and, and can be put in the past because, yeah. It just seems like such an unnecessary waste of public resources. In Memphis? <laughs> you crazy? They have abundant public resources, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that city. We love that city. We do. This is not the best use of resources, and we, and we need 12 back on the court. That's it. 
Well, that's it for Hoops Royalty as well. And please like and subscribe on YouTube. Five-star reviews and nice comments wherever you get this podcast. That is our only Christmas wish from each one of you. And it really helps us out. So while you're in that giving spirit, go ahead and give out those likes and reviews. We will be back next week to discuss John Morant's return. Connor, we haven't talked about this uh, offline, but I feel like we need to wait till after Jaw to record the episode next week. So, oh, yeah. you know, Wednesday or Thursday. We'll we'll give you the recap of what will hopefully be a triumphant return. And until then, thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful holiday season and go Grizz.